My name is Anthony Capazzoli, and this is the Dismantled Life Podcast, where we share stories of hope, love, and strength from the darkness of addiction into the sunlight of sobriety. These are stories from people just like us who have lived through the pain and made it. No matter how bad it gets, just know that you can and will recover. It takes work. It takes hard work. Each week, we talk in detail about what it takes to make it, what it takes to beat your addictions. I am a recovering addict from alcohol, cocaine, and nicotine. My addiction started in eighth grade. I am now 50. I had over 40 years of very bad habits to break. I hit rock bottom hard. More than once, I nearly died. I would have left my wife and two young children behind. I've been clean and sober for nearly three years. I completely dismantled my entire life and rebuilt it from the ground up. I believe to make it in recovery, it takes a physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual approach. It takes a positive mindset. It takes hard work. It takes a village. Join me weekly to learn from my sober superhero guests on the Dismantle Life podcast. Subscribe and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Check me out at dismantle.life. Email me at anthony at dismantle.life anytime. Please be sure to leave a rating and review anywhere you listen to your podcasts. And let me know if you want to be on the show. Happy recovery. First of all, where are you at? You're in California, I'm assuming. So I am in San Diego. San Diego. God, that's yeah. an amazing city, man. We, I've spent some time there just for work, travel and things. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful place to be. I, in fact, uh, one of my favorite cities, actually, because it's really outdoors. Obviously, I love Mexican food and I love the ocean. So it's a perfect, <laughs> it's yeah. a perfect well, I, I, I love it. I'm actually originally from the East Coast. I'm from Connecticut originally. Ah. And so the closest thing I knew to Mexican food was Chipotle. So, <laughs> so it's yeah. definitely a change. I, I mean, and it's, it, it is beautiful out here, but you get what you pay for because it is not cheap. That is for sure. Oh, man, I know. So, In fact, it's, it's truly as beautiful as California is. I could never live there. I, I just couldn't afford it. I would go, I would go nuts because I, I can... Uh, yeah, it's just it's it's too expensive. Yeah, no, it is. I, I agree. It took me a long time to get where I'm at to be able to even have a decent life out here. My wife and I went. So I was there for a work event as a few years ago, and uh, my wife and I went. And we don't ever do this kind of dining. Normally, we're a street taco kind of a joint kind of place, uh, that kind of thing. So just pedestrian dining, but good dining. Like I like to find holes in the wall and things like that. Right. I think that's amazing. But this one time. We said, hey, let's go to Nobu. And we were there for work and we went. So we ate delicious meal, ridiculously expensive. Every bite is better than the last. I mean, the place is just off the charts, right? And we go out. I was still drinking back then. Um, Mm -hmm. This is years and years ago. Uh, So we go out and... We have, I have work in the morning. So it's not like one of those crazy, or I don't remember the exact details. And we go back to the hotel. She ends up getting the flu and pukes all the food. We just ate at Nobu <laughs> out. And every time she puked, I was just like 50 bucks, 50 bucks. And I'm like, what the hell? but honestly, it's a, uh, it's a beautiful city. I've spent, uh, I used to work for a company up in, up in Orange County. So I, I've spent some time out there and my cousin lives out in LA. So it's great. And now we just left Chicago about a month and maybe about a month ago, moved yeah. from Chicago to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and we're in and out. Yeah, I remember seeing that. And the well, I did you a little bit of your story. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, that's a heck of a move. 
It was awesome. And there's more news actually. So we're here for a month and we're in this apartment rather for four months trying to find a place in Tennessee, but the, the real estate market is off the charts here. Like a house that should be 200 is selling for 400. Yeah. I think that's, that's pretty much everywhere. I mean, I mean, I'll get into that, but we overpaid for our house for sure. So. Yeah. And so we, we went to go visit our, my wife's parents, my in-laws in Navarre, Florida. And we said, we love it down here. What do you think about maybe instead of Tennessee, let's try to find a place down here. So we went and looked at a couple houses. We found one we loved, put an offer and it got accepted at a reasonable price. And we're seven right. minutes from the beach. It's a beautiful right. home. There's a pool. So, and with the two, two boys, like it's a big, big deal. And I'm really excited. We just got confirmation last night that it got accepted oh, wow. and that we're going to be Floridians in six weeks. So it's pretty, pretty big deal, man. So that is congratulations. I just moved into my home in December. So I know what the process is like. I went through a very, we had a really stressful home buying experience for my first time for sure. Yeah, it's, it's true. So we put tons of all, we, well, we shouldn't say tons, five offers out in Tennessee and we were getting, yeah. we were aggressive and trying to be reasonable and we were getting outbid not only substantially, and we were putting offers in twenty-five dollars to $35,000 over list. I did the uh, exact same thing. Yeah. And then we were getting beat out by people paying cash. And I'm yeah. like, five times in a row. And some of these houses, dude, for no joke, and we'll get into the podcast here in a minute, forgive me, but some of the houses for real, on paper, maybe worth 80 or 90 grand, 100 grand. And they were getting three, $400,000 for this house. It was a straight up teardown. Yeah, and 1,500 square foot house here in a nice neighborhood, 750. Oh my God, how do people move to California? If you don't grow up in that real estate yeah. market, how do you afford it, I wonder? like, Yeah, I mean, honestly, I would never be able to swing all this without being married to my wife and having joint income now. And, you know, and obviously sobriety. <laughs> That's yeah, <easy>. definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, I, yeah, it was, I, I had zero and a couple years later, I'm a homeowner. You know, I actually used to live behind the Home Depot a mile away. Um, and now, you know, a mile away, I'm a homeowner. So it's pretty cool. Wow. That's awesome. Well, hey, yeah. first of all, Matt, uh, I love having you on the show, dude. And thank you very much for the honor of being a part of A Life Recovered. I was honored to do it. It was really a highlight for me. A Life Recovered and Sober Press. I was, uh, thankfully, I was uh, grateful to have done both. And uh, it means yep. so much to me because I love what you guys do. And you're two of, on Instagram anyway, two of the Instagrammers that I, I religiously read every single day. Um, yeah. And I go back and read the yeah. archives too. And I, and I just love it, man. I, it's uh, because I think it's so important, not only what you're doing, but how you're doing it. I love that you reach that audience that way. I think that your style, the way that you craft your message is great. So well done. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I started it in July of 2020. You know, we were obviously months into the pandemic and yeah. I saw a lot of people dealing with domestic violence and relapsing and, and all these issues that we, I mean, as a nation, we were locked down together. So obviously, you know, a lot of things were turned upside down and I was honestly a little tired of zoom meetings to be honest with you. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to build this little platform on Instagram, just create a page where people can share their stories. Honestly, I had no idea if anybody was going to even going to be willing. I figured I'm just going to test this out. It's just for fun. It's just, it's still just for fun. You know what I mean? But I, I like that people are actually participating. Um, because without the individuals like you and all the other people, I mean, the page is it's pointless. It's nothing. So without, without each individual story, it's, it's, yeah, it's nothing. 
I would love to dive into your story from a conversations perspective. I, I like the flow to kind of be in this format and we don't have to follow it, but I like it to kind of fall into kind of pre-addiction. And I say that I am not a medical doctor. And I say that for any new listeners, everyone that's listened to the show knows that, but I say that I ask non-medically. So I say, what was pre-addiction like? And I say that, and then we transition into if there was a tipping point into addiction and then what addiction life was like, if there was a rock bottom or a let's put it down moment or, or an everything and nothing moment, as I call it, and then life in the sunshine. And every, all the listeners know, and you know as well, this isn't a gladiator school, so we don't we don't spend too much time on the- War stories. The war stories. Solution, solution. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. But we do, the only thing I do mention is, is uh, all the guests are encouraged to share uh, you know, how bad it got without giving up too much detail. Um, well, and that's exactly my outline on the Life Recovered when I send it to people. Hey, tell a little bit, maybe a little bit about childhood. What was the turning point? Where did addiction start? And then obviously what maybe an example or two of how bad it got and what do you do now? And I said the most important part is what do we do now? Because right. when we put out those stories or people are listening to podcasts, we want to know how we can do it ourselves, not how I can get back and take steps backwards. Right. You know? Absolutely, dude. <laughs> trying to figure out how I go forward. You know? Yeah, 100%. Let's dive in, man. I'm dying to learn more about you, and I'm sure the listeners are as well. My name is Matt. I'm an alcoholic and a recovering addict, and I am from originally from Connecticut. You know, as I went through detoxes and rehabs and stuff like that, they always asked me, what happened in your childhood or what happened early on where you can say that that's why I'm an addict or that's why I'm an alcoholic or that's what I've been burying for all these years. And I don't, I don't really have that. You know, I, I grew up very privileged. I grew up um, with parents that were very well off um, in Connecticut. You know, my, my, my parents are still married. Uh, my dad had a, a great job. My, my mom was, um, you know, a, a, she had worked early on, but was a, a housewife for, for most of my childhood. And I had great parents. I had a great childhood, like I said, and, and things were great. You know, I had every opportunity to succeed. So I don't really have that, that moment where I was like, oh, you know, that's, that's why. So I think that's why I struggled for so long is I, I still can't really pinpoint where this, this all came from, but I know that from the age of 15 or so, I developed a, a liking for the temporary escape from reality. You know, I, I enjoyed um, getting out of my comfort zone and having my head in a euphoric kind of space, you know, whether it was, I mean, it, it started off slowly as it does with many sure. of us. Uh, you know, I started when I was 15 or 16. I didn't start when I was like 11 or 12, like some people. I think that's why I hit it so freaking hard in my 20s. You yeah. know? Um, I was like making up for lost time or something in my, my mindset. I don't know. But um, yeah, I started off with, you know, sneaking a couple Coors Lights. And uh, my friend had introduced me to marijuana, you know, in, in the woods at the football game. And like, <laughs> yes. Wow. You know, and I was like, oh, my God, like, this is so cool. I can't believe I'm I can't believe I'm doing this. This is what I've heard so much about. Right. Know? All the like cool a, kids in the movies do it this way. I was like a sophomore high, in high school, you know. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, you know, I, I was having a lot of fun, and and a lot of my life and my early childhood was built on being the funny guy and being uh, friends with everyone. And you know, I, I kind of had that kind of chameleon state where I I was, I was kind of my own group. 
I would hang out with the jocks and the sports guys and I would hang out with the nerds and I would, you know, sit down with, you know, other groups during lunch. And I was kind of all over the place. You know, I, I, I liked little things about all the different groups. You know what I mean? So I think from, from an early age, I kind of just like to appeal to the masses, you know, unfortunately doing all that, I wasn't really focusing on school because I wanted everybody to be, to like me, you know? Um, So I, my, my parents had made a suggestion that I try out a prep school in upstate New York, just apply, see if I have a chance. And they, they took, they took me and I repeated my junior year of high school. So I did five years of high school. I repeated my junior year at a prep school in upstate New York after leaving Connecticut and leaving my public school, right? I just wasn't doing well. My parents said, Hey, you're intelligent. Why don't you go actually try to use it? You know what I mean? So, um, prep school was, uh, it was a very double-edged sword for me because I was in a structured environment, which is what I work best in for sure. But it also introduced me to being, cause I lived there. So it was a boarding school, you know? Um, so it also introduced me to drugs and alcohol. Again, I mean, really introduced me to drugs, new drugs, you know, new things that people were bringing in from wherever they were coming from. And cause we were there on the weekends. So that's where I kind of developed this like affinity for, for different drugs and, and harder drugs for sure. Pills. Um, one kid had a horse farm, so he was bringing in freaking ketamine that he was boiling. You know what I mean? And we were doing ketamine on Saturdays, crawling around the hallway. Like it got really freaking weird, you know? And, but, but my, but my grades were good. So like, I really buckled down during the week. My grades were A's and B's. I was actually captain of my varsity, co-captain of my varsity golf team. Um, I had been golfing like all my life. My dad got me into it. And, you know, I, I love it. A lot of people make fun of it, but it's something I can do till I'm freaking 80. So I enjoy golf. Golf for yeah. sure is a great, I mean, I don't play, but I, I mean, I get, first of all, anyone who would make fun of you for being a golfer seems weird to me because who doesn't want to be a good golfer? Even if you don't, I don't golf and I want to be a good golfer. So I was like, uh, I was really kind of starting to realize my potential while also learning about all these other things that I can do on the side when I'm not in school or on the course. Right. Yeah. So I actually got into the university of Rhode Island and uh, which was great. I got into a few schools. I got into the university of Maine and Orono and um, I got like deferred at UVM and a bunch of schools and, you know, I had some opportunities on the table and I was like, cool. So I ended up going to the University of Rhode Island mm-hmm. um, in the fall of 2007. And from there, I was right back to appealing to everybody, not focusing on schoolwork. I started to develop a habit with cocaine for sure. I was drinking every day. By sophomore year, I, was, I got a letter in the mail that summer and said, hey, you, you are not invited back. And I was like, that's probably fair. I haven't gone to any classes. So (laughs) (laughs) needless to say, my dad wasn't thrilled that he had just, you know, put a hundred thousand dollars to my education, about almost 50 grand a year. And I just said, fuck it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I would imagine that didn't go well at the dinner table. Yeah, no, I'm 32 years old now. My dad's still, when I talked to him, he said, Hey, by the way, you owe me a hundred thousand (laughs) dollars. For sure. (laughs) I, I would do, I would collect too. If my kids did that to me, I would definitely collect. I called him two hours ago. He said it to me. I'm not joking. (laughs) I don't know if you remember, you owe me a hundred grand. A hundred grand. I'm not going to forget. I'm definitely working on that, dad. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I, I left there. I was addicted to cocaine and didn't really realize it. I came home and I was working, you know, 
part-time at like a deli and I was working at like Dunkin' Donuts. I think it was, I don't know. I, I didn't give a shit. I just had these small time jobs, which are, which are good jobs. I didn't know that I'd be begging for those jobs 15 years later. Trust me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, but at the time I was like, ah, oh, it's just small time. I'm just going to get enough to, to further my addiction, blah, 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 and keep it going. Eventually my parents said to me, Hey, this is just getting worse. You're out of the house or you can join the military. And I was always a guy that kind of ran towards the fire. I, I've never, and I still don't understand the word moderation. It doesn't really apply to me. I, I, I tell people all the time that, oh, I'm still learning moderation. I'm not learning shit. I can't moderate it. I can't moderate anything, dude. You know, I, I, I have too much coffee now. I, 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 I drink too much water. You know what I mean? I take too much. You know, I, yeah, I, but I, I always used to say, if some is good, more is definitely better. I, yeah. I, I, I went yeah. down there. I had to cut out not to interrupt your story, but I, I had to cut out or control my coffee because my espresso intake replaced my cocaine usage. So I, I literally just replaced the the use of Coke with espresso. So I, I'm down to two cups of coffee a day and that I stop because oh, if I don't, I jones the fuck out. So I'm, I, I get that hundred percent. Yeah, I actually just recently, I started switching. I never thought I would say this, but I started asking around on good teas to buy. <laughs> like, same thing. I do the same thing. Tea, dude. I used to be, you know, in the back of the street smoking crack. And now I'm like, hey, do you guys know of a good Earl Grey? <laughs> I'm <laughs> looking for something called, yeah, dude. I, I, the dragon, I, I, dragon pearls. And I do, I'm with you 100% with that tea. Yeah. My wife got me into it. And I wouldn't say I'm a tea sophisticate, but I def, definitely take it more seriously than I used to. That's for sure. I, so they said, so they gave me that ultimatum. You're out of here or the military. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to go down to the military and, or go down to the recruiting office and, and see what's going on. So, you know, I was looking on the walls and I see all these photographs of, you know, Navy SEALs and Navy divers and EOD, the bomb tech guys. Yeah. Uh, of course. The hurt locker. Those yeah. are explosive ordnance disposal EOD guys. And um, I was like, well, let me, let me do a challenge program, you know? Um, cause I always want to take it to the max. Um, and I had some background in scuba diving. I was actually, uh, I actually had my certification from scuba diving that I had gotten in like 2003 or 2004. So I was like, let me try that. So you have to get your contract for that. So I actually, uh, I was working out with, this is while I was an addict too. I, I was doing cocaine every couple of days and I was drinking every day. And so I was working out with SWONEC, which is Special Warfare Operations, New England candidates. So it's all the guys in New England that are going for special programs uh, for the Navy. And wow. you, have to, you have to get certain physical scores to enter into the military with that contract for special operations. So I trained with those guys for about six, seven, eight months. I mean, we were at the beaches doing open water swims and, and crazy shit, dude. And it was hard because I came from you know, Dunkin' Donuts and using cocaine. And now all of a sudden I'm training for this like intent, but I got, I got up to speed. I was learning Jesus. all the strokes in the, in the water and, and everything, the combat side stroke, all this stuff. Right. And, um, I eventually got my contract and I went into boot camp March of 2011. Yeah. So I went into boot camp and actually, you know, I, I, I joined the military at a very interesting time because, I joined in 2011, which is the year that we got Osama bin Laden. We actually got Osama bin Laden during boot camp when I was in. Yeah. Um, and we also in the military, the military was changing at that time. They did away with the don't ask, don't tell policy. So you could be openly gay in the military, you know? So like all these things were changing in the military as I was joining, it was, 
it was, you know, it, it was a crazy time for the military. And I went through boot camp and I, I really excelled. You know, we had started with, uh, I want to say 94 or 92 students in the beginning. And, you know, by the end, uh, we were down to, I want to say like 61. So the attrition- Is this regular, I'm sorry, is this regular boot camp or Navy SEAL no. training? No, this was special operations. So it was oh. all the guys, it was the Air Rescue, SWIC, EOD, Navy SEAL, and Diver. It was those groups that are in wow. boot camp together. It's a nine-week program versus an eight-week um, and we, yeah, I mean, I, I, I did great, you know, That's I, awesome. I went in and I was like, you know, I'm not going to lie. I was pretty, I was withdrawing pretty good. The first couple of days, um, I was overweight. I was out of shape, but you know, once you sign that contract, you're not going anywhere. So, <laughs> right. They got you. Yeah. You're not going anywhere. You just signed, I just signed my life away. Absolutely. You know? so I, I got that. in shape yeah. pretty quick. I started to beat kind of those demons of addiction that I was in, you know, um, and at that point, I didn't really see it as an addiction, you know, like I, I was, yeah, I was years in, I had already started suffering consequences by this time. I didn't even mention, I had already totaled two or three cars, you know, I had already been to jail at university of Rhode Island twice, you know, drunk in public several times, but I was still telling myself that this is all a phase, you know, this is um, fine. Yeah. This is just yeah, what you do. So I'm seven years into consequences from alcohol and drugs. And I'm still telling myself that this is a phase, you know, and that's part of that cunning, baffling, powerful, you know? Definitely. And so, um, you know, I left there and I went into follow on training with the divers and I actually got caught drinking. You're not, they told me hey, there's only a couple rules. Don't drink. Don't drink while you're in this next training command. Course I, of course I drank, dude. come on, dude. You know? and um, I got kicked out of the program. Wow, dude. So not only did I get kicked out and lose my contract, something I had been working for for a year at this point, but I got sent undesignated to the fleet. So I got sent bottom of the barrel, no job. When you get to your ship or wherever you're going, you're going to go where they tell you, you go needs of the Navy, whatever job they want to put you in, they're going to put you. So all of a sudden I was back down and I suffered another massive consequence from this. Right. Jesus. Now I said, fuck it, dude. So I was in the military. Now it's about the end of 2011 from 2011 to 2014. I was stationed in Yokosuka, Japan. I was on the aircraft carrier, the USS George Washington. And I became an absolute master manipulator, selfish as hell, full alcoholic. I was still in that stage of the Navy owes me, um, people owe me, society owes me. And it completely fucked me. You know, I was just, I didn't realize it, but I was just going like this, you know. Um, people talk about how they were a functional alcoholic. I think that that's bullshit. No offense. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. I think I was just managing. I wasn't functioning like showing up to work with alcohol on your breath every single day. That is not functioning. That is managing. Every day I was just begging that I didn't get in trouble, that I didn't get caught, that they didn't smell my breath. You know what I mean? Yeah. That they didn't go like this because I didn't shave the night before. I mean, I was just, I was a slacker. I was lazy. I was selfish. Some of these things I still am, you know, it's still a work in progress, but um. Yeah, getting kicked out of that program really fucked me up because it was something I had worked for. I thought I finally found my niche and, and I was done. So um, I actually ended up getting an honorable, uh, 
so what happens is when you re-enlist in the military, you get discharged and then you re-enlist all in the same five minutes. You say, okay, I'm out. I did my first enlistment and now I'm going back in. So I re-enlisted. So I had uh, three or four years of honorable service. And then I got transferred to San Diego, which is where I went to shore duty. And now, you know, I was dating a girl back on the East coast and she had, I moved her out to San Diego and we got a place. And now my alcoholism and everything just completely took off. dude. Um, it got really bad. Um, I started, I mean, I was getting BAH, which is housing allowance from the military. So dude, I, I was bringing in like, is it still like a not high ranking sailor at all? You know, E4, I worked my way up to E5 and it, I was getting like five grand a month, dude. And I was saving nothing. I, I was living in a nice apartment with her, but I had no extra money. I was living at the bar. I was getting hammered and buying drinks for everyone yeah. all the fucking time. You know what I mean? Cause I was still in that phase of, I want everyone to like me. I want everyone to know who Matt Ward is. When I walk in with my jacket and I walk in, I got my cologne on. And, hey, I'm here, guys. You know, you need to pay attention to me. I, you need a drink? I got you a drink. You need, uh, you need that? I got. <laughs> I totally get that. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's fucking pathetic, dude. I, but yeah. I, I thought I was it. I thought I was it. You know, I was liber I was living a celebrity lifestyle without the celebrity paycheck. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, it was doomed for failure. You know. Definitely. Um, but, you know, my family on the East Coast, he's got it together. He's second enlistment in the military, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it wasn't long before I discovered uh, methamphetamine. Uh, I started running out of money for cocaine. I was using, uh, every couple of days, I was using cocaine in the military. You know, I, I was breaking the cardinal rule of the military every single day or every other day, you know. Which is and, don't, don't drink and don't do drugs. Well, no, you can drink, uh, not in excess, but you don't use drugs. Yeah. You get drug tested, you know? And I, I imagine pretty well. frequently, right? Because, I mean, people are handling munitions and... It's random. It's random. So yeah. I was literally doing Russian roulette every single day. I mean, I, 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 every single day when I showed up to my command, I had a fucking rainbow in my system, dude. I, I, somehow, I didn't even know what drugs I had in my system, dude. Right. You know, one weekend I, I, I got roofied in Pacific Beach, San Diego, and I, you know, I had a whole black eye on my, I had a black eye and a black eye had swollen my ear and I fell through a window. Like it was, I was living just recklessly and showing up to work and they're just like, dude, what happened to you? You know, and I'm just like, I don't know. <laughs> like in my head, I'm like, dude, I'm fucking shot out, <laughs> you know? right. but I'm creating all these like elaborate excuses of all these crazy things that have happened to me and poor me and these arrows oh of these arrows of misfortune that are, you know, coming right. at me. You know? <laughs> they me. Yeah, they keep getting me, you know, but yeah. I, I, I have a great heart and I'm on the right path, but these 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 outside things, you know? Like, yeah, definitely. Oh, dude, I would be the same bullshitting way, man. Yeah, you're an alcoholic, you're a drug addict, and yeah. you're, you're the way you're going is you're headed to prison or to homelessness. and Or dead. I didn't realize, yeah. I didn't realize that, but in a couple of years I found that out, you know, so... Um, eventually I, I was discharged from the military. I had showed up late to work and by late to work, I mean, I was four hours late. I had come off a three day bender on meth after I had moved my girlfriend and we had, we were done at that point. I had already done, uh, one, uh, oh, actually, let me tell you. So I self-referred myself in the military to get help mm -hmm. only because I wanted to avoid 
I knew that the way I was going, I was going to get kicked out. And I liked getting that paycheck on the first and 15th to help support my habit. So I self-referred, said, hey, I have a problem. So I had a little bit of willingness. This is in 2016. So I had a little bit of willingness to, um, to get better. And I, and I knew that I was kind of in trouble. So, you know, I, I kind of was starting to realize it. Like, this is really getting ugly. The police are getting called on me and my girlfriend all the time in our apartment. I'm fucking punching holes in the walls. I'm angry. I'm, I'm hiding. I'm, I was such a liar, dude. Like I had a little notepad in my pocket of the lies that I would tell my girlfriend and I would write them down so that the next day I could look and reference what I told her and keep up with the bullshit, you know? Um, so I self-referred, I went to rehab and, you know, actually in 2016, I was introduced to my first AA meeting. Um, and so this was kind of like the turning point of where I started to see, what this was all about, the, the, the way that I live now. Um, it took me a long time to get there, but I, I saw, and I went to an AA meeting and first of all, I fucking hated it. It was boring as hell. I didn't want to be there, but the people in there all looked pretty happy. And the stories they told, they looked genuine. Like I was matching with the words that were coming out of their mouth with their facial facial expressions. And it looked real. And all 25 people were saying the same thing. So I was like, well, I mean, they can't all be pulling my leg. (laughs) They can't, if they're all bullshitting right now, that's a lot of work. And I'm in like Hollywood in an actor's studio. You know what I mean? So this, something's gotta be going on here that I don't know about. And because people look happy, but fuck, this environment blows, dude. Like, you know, like I don't want to miss, you know, but I started to give it a shot. I went to a few meetings and I was doing some work on myself in that treatment facility. And, um, you know, I, I came out of it and I, I was still, it was early, man. I mean, this is why I think it takes people so many tries. This is why it took me so many tries is because I left there and I was willing to do some work, but I was only willing to do 40 or 50%. And then on my second time in treatment, I was willing to do about 70%. So I'm still leaving these gaps of percentages. And I'm wondering why I'm back on the side of the road with the bottle in my hand or why I'm relapsing every single time. Oh my God, why can't I get this thing? Well, I wasn't doing work. Um, So anyway, I I eventually got kicked out of the military. I separated with her. She moved back to the East Coast. They got kicked out. I got an other than honorable discharge. Um, So the discharges are honorable medical, general, other than honorable, bad conduct, and dishonorable. So dishonorable is like rape, treason, trafficking weapons, like major crimes. Um, Other than honorable is the standard discharge for drug abuse or for popping on a piss test. Yeah. So I left the military and I was like, okay, well, what can I do now? Well, I'm addicted. I have a good idea. I'm going to, I'm going to sell cocaine. So, you know, yeah, yeah, you got to pay for I was it. Like, well, I'm, and in San Diego, it is not hard to find very good blow. So <laughs> I started, you know, I, I had no money at this point. So I started taking out all these Navy Federal still had me as an active duty member. So I was taking out interest free loans. One, two, three, four, five. And I was the worst drug dealer ever, dude, because I was doing all my product. People would call me and be like, hey, man, I need this, I need that. I'm like, dude, I just don't know. Yeah, I just did it all. <laughs> Sorry, dude, I fucking did it all. Right, so. Yeah. <laughs> so you I just picked up terrible, yesterday. Yeah, I know. Terrible drug dealer. 
eventually Navy Federal was like, dude, you're 40 grand in debt. We're not giving you any more money. You're done. I was out of money. I had nothing. Family had cut me off. And so, uh, you know, I, I started doing meth and I very quickly lost my mind. Um, in the middle of this, I was on, uh, you know, Tinder and plenty of fish. And I was like trying to meet women and they were meeting me at bars and stuff like that. And I was just talking to them like, yeah, yeah, like this is what I do for work. Oh, I was completely making all this shit up like a liar. And I had actually met one girl through Tinder who is actually now my wife. Right. So I fed her a complete line of bullshit, told her I was this and that, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, there was, there was no hookup or no nothing. I, I, I just had good conversation with this girl yeah. and it was, we developed sort of a friendship and there were times when she saw me, I was living in an apartment in East County that my dad was freaking paying for. Cause he thought I was getting my shit together. Like I was telling him, you know, um, and she saw a couple days of sobriety in me and was like, okay, this isn't a bad guy, you know? Um, but now we're in 2018 and actually within one month of actually meeting her, I got two DUIs by the same California highway patrolman. The got, same one? <laughs> got two DUIs Holy by hell. the same cop in a 22 day period. Is he like, what the so, fuck are you doing? <laughs> he actually probably saved my life on the second one. So I was like super addicted to drugs and addicted to the strip club. I was basically living at the strip club, dude. I would wake up, I'd leave the strip club when it closed at two, three in the morning. I was giving blow to the strippers there. And I was like going out to my car. I was, dude, I was a habitual drunk driver. I was, I would fall asleep out in the parking lot. And then I'd go back into the strip club at like noon or one, dude, after like being in my car, like it was fucking disgusting, dude. Wow. Like, but I was doing nothing wrong with that profession, but no. for me, it was not, it was just not normal. Like it was so bad. I was so yeah, into absolutely. drugs and just that lifestyle was, my clock was just so bad and it was just really, it was awful, you know? And she saw that I was, you know, and here I am having to go to court and on my first DUI, I got caught with a lot of cocaine bagged up scale, all that. And before I got into court for my first DUI, I got my second and on my second one, I was high on meth coming off of crystal after a couple days. And I was on a bender and I thought I was being chased by the cartel because I was buying cocaine from my drug dealer who was getting it from across the border. Anyways, I had it in my mind that they were after me because I still owed this guy like it was only like a hundred dollars. I think I owed him, but I was had it in my mind that everybody's out to get me. I don't know if you've ever had that paranoia. Yeah, dude. I the, the paranoia, anyone who's listening to this and knows the paranoia, they yeah. know how real it is, dude. Yeah. Like when I see a guy in the bushes, I will spend hours explaining to you how he is there. And I know you don't believe me, but he is there. Like it is the most real shit. I can't, exp I can't even express it. It led me to boarding up my walls in my apartment and, you know, thinking everything was a microphone. So I had faucets unhooked and I had vents pulled out. Like it was fucking ridiculous, man. Yeah. Um, because that shit is just so real. Everybody's listening to me. People are out to get me. 
And on this, on this, when I got my second DUI, I was coming on the freeway and I was going 80 miles an hour because the cartel was after me and I had to get away from them. I thought I was hearing gunshots and this cop pulls me over. Same fucking guy, dude. I'm all fucking twisted on meth. My face is fucking green. And he's just like, dude, holy shit. Get to the side. What's going on? So yeah, he doesn't know. He knows that I'm on something, but he doesn't know. And uh, so he like does a breathalyzer. I pass the breathalyzer. He gives me all these tests, walk the line, touch your nose, do all this. And I fucking passed everything. But he's like, dude, this is not right. I can't, I can't, I, I can't do this. You have to come in with me. Yeah, so they yeah exactly. In and they, uh, you know, they're, I, I'm, I'm twisted. I have no idea what's going on. I, I've been up for days and they're like, we need to take your blood. And of course I'm like, yeah, take it. Let's do it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so they do. Like, I'm curious like, myself. It's in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's check it out. You know? <laughs> right. And so they take my blood and I had, I was off the charts with a ton of fucking meth in my system. And, uh, I ended up getting a DUI uh, and another one. And so I got to court and I have two DUIs, possession of cocaine with intent to sell, driving on a suspended license after my first one. I got pulled over originally on the first one for expired registration, even though I was driving erratic, it was probably pulled me over, but I had an expired registration, probable cause. There we go. Sure. And um, so I had like, dude, I had like a list of charges, some of which were fucking very serious. So I was looking at, I was actually looking at some like pretty serious time. Yeah. I was going to say you're, you're stacking up the years here. Like from, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, it was really ugly. And I, at that point I was like, okay, it, it is what it is. Like my family had already cut me off. I had lost the apartment. Um, you know, my wife, her name is Janet. She was kind of like, dude, you're nuts, bro. <laughs> like, yeah. You know? So everybody was gone. So I had no real connection. So I was like, well, it is what it is. I, whatever. You know what I mean? But I'm a talk, I'm a talker. I'm a manipulator. So I'm at least going to go in there and paint the story of, you know, what I'm going to do and sobriety and all this stuff and how I want to get my shit together, you know, and I'm going to court in East County, in El Cajon, California, which actually prior to the Philippines used to be the meth capital of the world out here. Right. So everybody that goes to this courthouse, I mean, 90% of them are there for meth. You know what I mean? When you walk into that courthouse, it looks like a rehab. You know, it can't be a pretty picture. I shouldn't say a rehab. It looks like the detox before the rehab, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or or before the detox. Right. Oh yeah. It looks like everybody's almost at that point to to, to head into some treatment. You know, it's not a pretty sight. Um, And so I walked in there and I went in there with a public defender. They told me all the charges and I I told the judge, I said, Hey, everything you're looking at on that piece of paper is accurate. 100%. I did it all. I am addicted to drugs. I'm an alcoholic and I'm asking for some fucking help. Obviously I didn't say the F word. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I said, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm legitimately looking for some help. Um, I'm a veteran, you know, poor me a little bit, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. And so she said, okay, well, I, I, you know, I want you to go to sober living. I want you to show me proof of meetings. I want you to, I, I am going to give you an 18 month DUI class for two DUIs. I'm revoking your license, hard suspension for one year. You know, so I, I, you're doing trash pickup on the side of the highway for a few weeks. You know what I mean? So I got these punishments, but they were all misdemeanors, dude. I didn't get a single felony from that court visit with when I was facing felony charges. So, I mean, the biggest stroke of luck 
100%. Yeah, I was gonna say because with so, that kind of cocaine weight, you could have done quite a bit of time. Like, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I got very lucky. I mean, luckily too, they had already made possession of cocaine a misdemeanor because jails have been to prisons are filling up with making those minor offenses. Well, not a minor offense, but they yeah. were making they were filling up the prisons with these small amounts of cocaine, so they had made it misdemeanors already. So they reduced it to possession. So I got those. I got those punishments and I also had to, this was the hard one was I had to register as a narcotics offender for the state of California. So I'm on probation as a registered, basically they have, they don't have to have probable cause to search me at any time for the next, I think it's five, five years. I want to say mm-hmm. um, they can just pull me over, run your pockets. You know what I mean? Which, which is fine because I'm sober now. But, right. Right. Yeah. Go know, ahead. Feel free. Here I am. Now, now, nowadays I drive by the police and I'm like, hey, waving. And they can tell too, like for the listeners, when you're hiding it, you think you're good at hiding it. You're not, you're, you're just not. When you're tweaked out, you've been up for days, you've been drunk for days. The cops know it. They can see it a mile away. Uh, it's just one of those things. And then when you're clean and you're out there, they know that too. Even if you have registered as a narcotics offender or are a criminal and, and, and you have been. Uh, yeah. Some, sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll pull up next to a cop at the stoplight <laughs> and I'll pull up actually. So I'm legitimately even with their window so I could say hello. Yeah. And then I, Hey, appreciate you, sir. <laughs> you know? Like, oh, so, that's hilarious. Um, yeah. So, and by this time, you know, the, my wife now, Janet had actually asked me, you know, I was still in my addiction, still struggling and still going through psychosis but trying to get it together, you know, and she asked me to actually move in with her because she saw I was struggling. So my wife is Cambodian and her parents are spiritual healers from Cambodia. They escaped the communists when the communists were taking over in the seventies with Pol Pot and everything. And the Khmer Rouge um, were taking over in Cambodia and there was a mass genocide and they were actually in the labor camps um, under Pol Pot. And they, I mean, they, I mean, we think we had it bad. Yeah. I mean, that's no. real shit. That's definitely <laughs> no. real shit. Right? That is some real shit. That is shit. You can't even Google some no. of the things that they went through. And, um, but they're here in the United States and they, they were living with her and they said, you know what, move them in. We're going to help them out, you know? And that's amazing. That, that is- when it is, no, it is, it is. But when you bring in someone like that, it's one of one of two things is going to happen. He's going to get a shit together or he's going to rob you and you're going to be left with nothing and he's going to hurt someone. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's a real gamble that they were taking. I don't think that they knew how deep I was still in my addiction, that I was a, an absolutely a chronic relapser. I was a master manipulator. I was going to tell you what you had to hear so I could get five bucks from your pocket and, you know, go on my way. And, um, but they moved me in and you know, long story short with that, I went back to treatment in, uh, at the lighthouse in Anaheim, California, and I went for 58 days and I stayed sober after that for 19 months. I had a spiritual experience at the lighthouse in Anaheim, California. Um, I can't, it's hard to explain a spiritual experience because, I was under the impression that spiritual experiences only happened to people that were high atop a mountain that don't talk for 10 days at a time. And they're super in tap. You know, you have to be in Fiji for it. First of all, you can't have it in the United States. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I I thought you had to be this like 
you have so beyond uh, of, a, of a human being to experience something like that. But I didn't realize that spiritual experiences, they're not, it was just a realization for me. It was a realization that if I put forth a hundred percent into this, I can, can do it. it. You can do it. I, I just didn't, I didn't, I have the capabilities and I have these people that are entering my life that are taking a chance on me. And I have these breaks from the court and I have all these little things happening, but I'm still in that phase of poor me and poor me. And, um, yeah. And I also just can't imagine a life without alcohol. I can't imagine a life without booze. It was my best friend, you know, like it had gotten me through all these situations of, that were so unmanageable, but it was manageable in my addictive mind. It was manageable because I had alcohol. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I can deal, I could deal with anything as long as I had my little bottle, you know, I could get through any situation, you know? Um, That's a huge point, uh, man. I, I, I don't want to stop your flow because this is an incredibly yeah, no, good story, yeah. but that one little tiny point that you just made, it's not tiny. It's tiny because it just was something you mentioned, but it's a massive point for anyone listening. That's wondering, should I, shouldn't I, can I, can't I, the, the what you said, Matt, about, I can't imagine a life without alcohol. That's massive. Everyone listening that hasn't started their journey or had their journey and has relapsed is they think I thought the same. I what's I can't I can't what's life going to be like without cocaine in my pocket or in my nose or both in a in a bunch of alcohol. You can't imagine a life without it until you do. And I just want to point out that every single person on this show, every single person in recovery has had that exact thought. And you can make it, you will make it, you, you need hope and you got to put in the work. And I, I just want to interject that because that is a massive point. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt, but that was just something I wanted to, to, to highlight. It's, it's true though, because it was scary. I was really nervous. You know what I mean? It was like losing a family member or not yeah. having someone like so close to me or, or just that thing that was getting me through. You know what I mean? Like that was all, that was the only thing I really needed. Like, please don't take that. Like, right. <laughs> this is all I, I've got. Yeah, I get yeah, that. But then I realized like I was, so you talked in the beginning about, about the crossroads, you know? Yeah. And, and before I had went right before I had went into treatment to the lighthouse, you know, I had had a little situation with, with my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, after she had moved me in, we developed this relationship and she's such a great human being. I, I can't believe that I went from hanging out with people on the streets that aren't bad people. They just lived a lifestyle that I couldn't handle. Yeah. I, I met some great people on the streets. Yeah, definitely. They just don't want to get that. Hey, I don't want a job. I want to live out here. I want to do, this. you know what I mean? I just, I had seen a little bit of, of that. I could probably do more. Um, and I, I didn't think that this is not for me, dude. I can't do right. this. So, yeah, um, I get that. I had moved in with her and, and I had that realization where like, dude, you know, we had a little domestic violence kind of dispute. Um, I had, I had pushed her off of me and she kind of went back and I was like, dude, and I was drunk again, yeah. you know? Um, and, uh, that was, that was before the treatment. And I, I said, you know what, dude, she had kicked me out. My family had already, they had already said, Whoa, we don't, we don't trust you. I'm, I'm not talking to you until you're six months over. So my family on the East coast, they were done with me, you know? And, um, I, I was at that turning point where I was now I was going to commit to a life on the streets or I was going to really do this thing because I had finally realized, I think after 
15 years that this isn't a phase anymore, dude. You yeah. know what I mean? Like only so many years I could tell myself that this is a phase. Like I need to wake the fuck up, dude. Like I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm getting these opportunities, these little, these little rays of light. And I need, I need to move towards that shit. You know, yeah. so I went to treatment. I had that spiritual experience during a fucking yoga session, dude. It was the sloppiest yoga session is you have people coming <laughs> off of heroin after like two or three days and we're like all like fat as fuck, like doing these poses, like sweating yeah. balls. And it was well, just, dude, you know what though? Like I, I, I also like, you also bring a great point. There's nothing more beautiful to me than someone that looks like a living fucking train wreck on their first goddamn day trying to get better like that. You could tell like that. And yeah. So like you mentioned, the yoga classes look like shit, the person on the treadmill, whatever the fuck it is they're doing. Yeah. They're doing that. That's their first fucking day. There is literally nothing more magical or beautiful than that moment when that person has decided to put that shit down and take their first step forward. And it sucks and it hurts and you're vomiting and you're sweating and you're a living fucking disaster, like yeah. you said. But yep. that and that there's a certain I don't want to get too gross here, but there's a smell because your body is like emanating poison and it's just yeah, disgusting. Yeah, yeah. But that. There's nothing more beautiful than that, a room full of people on that yes. first day. And I say that because don't let that shit deter you either. Not you, Matt, of course, but listeners, like embrace that shit. You will find beauty in uh, two other things you pointed out that are super cool. Uh, that first of all, uh, I don't judge what people do for a living. You can do whatever you want for a living. So I say that because strippers are strippers and God bless. Doesn't I, I have no judge and good for, good for them. But also the people on the street, like you mentioned, that are homeless or whatever term you want to apply, um, I don't judge them either. I, 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 and and I, I say that because I see them and I used to be a jag off about it, right? When I was using and abusing and a piece of shit. Um, and now I look at them with an open heart and an open mind and an open soul because I understand that either A, some may have, of course, chosen to be there, but many have not. And they're struggling with lots of not only addictions, but mental health issues. So I have a very warm and tender place in my heart for them. And, and, and I say that because a lot of times on their first day, the first journey, people don't know what to do. So you know what you do? You fucking do it anyway. And it sucks and, and, and you're not going to be good at it. I, I'm still three years into this. I'm, I'm not even, I'm still not good at recovery. I don't think I'm ever going to get good at recovery. I'm just good at getting through the day. And I'm sorry, man, I don't want to derail, but like you bring up so many great points. I'm going to give it back to you now. The yoga class looked like shit and go. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. So um, yeah, it was sloppy, man. But towards the end of it, you know, um, oh, and it was funny too, because we have this, like, there's like this one super pretty girl who's the yoga instructor. Yeah. So like, everybody <laughs> wants to attend yoga class. We're like all right. Impressor, yeah. <laughs> You know, and at the end, um, I just like, I was laying down and the sun came out and the sun hit my face and it was cloudy when we had started and that sun came out and it just hit my face and I could just feel a tear come down my fucking face. And I know it sounds pathetic or not pathetic, but it sounds um, not impressive or unimportant almost, but I had this moment and it was just like, just a moment of clarity. Uh, dude, I haven't had a moment of clarity since I was freaking 14. You know, if I even did have ever have a moment of clarity and um, I said, you know what, I'm going to give everything to this show, dude. And I, you know, the rehab, they gave us a, a free 24 hour fitness membership, you know, so I showed up to 24 hour fitness, yeah. fat, out of shape, like you said, smelling like shit, sweating balls. And I get in there 
and I'm, I'm moving slow because my body, I mean, I was, I was, I was deteriorating, dude. I was dying. You know, I'm 30 years old and I literally am in the shape of a 93 year old person. I mean, I, I couldn't get to the mailbox, you know, and and I didn't even have a mailbox for some time, you know, but when I was living with her, I couldn't even go get the mail, dude. I I was so bad. And I'm probably pissing people off because I'm taking too long on the machines, but dude, whatever. Because exactly. I'll tell you what, dude, I had a lot more people cheering me on to get sober and get in shape than I had cheering me on to fucking die on the street with drugs and alcohol. So yeah. some people are nervous. What are, what are people going to think if I walk into the rooms or what are people going to think if I'm out of shape and walk into the gym or what are people going to think if I'm, I'm not at their level when I walk into whatever establishment I'm walking in at, dude, you're there. You're there. You're there. You know, it's that, it's that, that first step. And for me, I didn't realize that I had so many other issues going on once I removed the drugs and alcohol, finally, you know, for, I had, uh, you know, I was a couple weeks into treatment and I had had that spiritual experience and I was committing and I was doing my journaling and I was really, really fucking working on myself. You know, I had stopped telling everybody what they wanted to hear, like in my past treatments, you know, I had went to two rehabs prior, I had been to four detoxes prior, Um, you know, I had been to two sober livings prior, so I I had made attempts, And, and I, and by this time, also when I went into rehab, I had been going to AA. I had developed, uh, I forgot to say this, but I had developed a, a liking for AA. And, and I do, I, I am a member of, of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, yeah. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. That is how I do my sobriety. Everybody's entitled to, you know, their smart recovery, celebrate recovery, uh, whatever it is, your willpower and white knuckling, but yeah, AA is what works for me. So I'm going to continue to do that. Of course, and, dude. I, I, um, so I, so I just want to say that the, you'd mentioned on when you stop telling people what they want to hear are real like that, that that's a very important point again. And I just say, cause for me, I had that same uh, moment and, and I'm not doing a point to point here for you. I'm just saying that when I started to be hundred percent real and transparent with my emotions and not telling people what they want to be here, but participating in real emotions with people in myself and allowing myself to be uncomfortable, exposed, not to be everyone's best friend in all of that. It's hard. It takes some getting used to because yeah, I had 40 years of very bad habits of doing that to break. And when I stopped drinking and using, it allowed me the ability to do that and, and deal with the, the pressure of real emotions. And I say that in a positive way, uh, but it's hard, man. It's really fucking hard. And that's one of the things that I can't tolerate and I won't tolerate. Well, there are two. Uh, there's a lot, but two specifically on this point is are like unnecessary deliberate chaos for no reason at all. If you'd like the kind of like reality TV bullshit where everything's a fucking episode and everything's a problem and stupid yelling and screaming, I won't tolerate that because that's just nonsense. You're just creating a a shit environment for no reason or just chaos because you're just, you like to live in the noise and I don't like, I can't do that anymore. The other thing is people trying to hustle or bullshit me. I will not tolerate it for one fucking second. I will cut you out of my life and never speak to you again because those two things for me remind me of who I used to be and right. I can't have it in my life at all. And it's such an important component of my sobriety, my recovery, because yep. as soon as I feel it coming or people start, and you can, you can, you, you know, Matt, when they, you can feel the lie setting up a little bit right. when they're building the frame. And I, as soon as I feel that shit, man, I cut you out so hard and so fast. Yeah, well, and it's we, over. Know from, we know from experience. Yeah, dude. And I just, I get, I don't get angry. I just move on. 
So I, 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 this is a wonderful episode. Please continue. I'm sorry to keep interrupting you. No, you're fine. You're fine. So yeah. So I mean, I, I realized that I was lying so much and I, I actually, you know, when I was in treatment, I, I was really trying to cut out the lying and, and get honest and, and stop telling people what they wanted to hear. But dude, I would still catch my lies all the time. And I still do. Yeah. I'll say something and I'll be like, Oh my God, that, that's not true at all. Totally lying to you. Yeah. I would just fucking say that. No one cares. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I lie about the little things, dude. Like, yeah, that was me that took out the trash. No, it fucking wasn't. Yeah, dude, a hundred percent. It's the and little you, fucking lie. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Even if it wasn't you who took out, even if it wasn't, we don't care. We yeah. don't care if it wasn't you that took out the trash. You know? <laughs> yeah, I absolutely. So these little things that I would still doing, and I would, I would catch myself and be like, okay, no, 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 that wasn't me. It was, it was, yeah, uh, that was Darius that took out the trash. I did not do it. Let me just be clear. Um, yeah. So anyway, so yeah, so I left there uh, after 56 or 58 days and dude, I felt like I had my shit together, you know, yeah. and I had a really good experience. It was, it was a very nice treatment facility and I, you know, I, I, I took it for what it was worth and I, I really fucking yeah. worked on myself and I moved back in with her and I stayed sober for 19 months and in that, and that was incredible because like a lot of people listening to this or who, <laughs> or, or you and I, you know, we, we couldn't go, it was very small amount of time that we could go not only without drinking, but maybe without thinking about it or. I couldn't or, go a day. Yeah, I couldn't was, go a half a day. Yeah, no, it was really hard, you know? So I, and if I wasn't drinking, I was planning on my next scheme of how to, how to get it, how to hide it and how to still manage, not function, but manage, you know what I mean? I, I used so, to set up my runs to meet my dealer. Uh-huh. Uh, it, sometimes a couple of days in advance because I, I was so yeah. good at how much coke I had in my pocket to my usage, so I could I could gauge when I would need to go pick up, and I never ran out. I always overlapped, so I had I can go from bag to bag without a break. Ah, very smart, very and, nice. yeah, and and I would start plotting. You know, I got to get a fat t- a flat tire repaired. I got to run and get some always some bullshit that didn't require a receipt. You know, like so I could be gone for a while and blame it on the technician or whatever the fuck it was. <laughs> And, and I would, I would yeah. do that. And of course I thought I was fooling people. My wife, she, she always knew what the fuck I was doing, but you feel like you, that you're, you're hustling people and giving away that you're not, but I, like you, I would set up my pickups accordingly, sometimes super early, whatever the fuck I needed to do to get it. And, and that hustle layer, when you finally put it all down, it feels so freeing when you don't have to do that shit anymore and not yeah. think about it. And that's part of, for me too, is not always having to chase the drunk, the Coke, the, the cigarettes. And, and without that, I get to sit here in peace. And, and that's another very important aspect of recovery is being yeah. with yourself. It's great. Yeah. I, um, so yeah, when I, when I left treatment, I left in May of 2019. And I went immediately to sober living because I knew from experience that if I went right back out yeah. to living around the corner from a liquor store, it probably wasn't going to be good. Not because I didn't want to be sober, but because I just, my sobriety was, was not strong enough. Yeah. I was not strong enough to go and put myself in the middle of temptation. I had to have that structure. You know, I said from the beginning that I work best in a structured environment. I think that's why I made it through the military as far as I did, you know, um, so I've always worked best in a structured environment. So I went to sober living where they drug test on, you know, Mondays and Thursdays or whatever it was, you know, twice a week. And I needed that accountability still, 
you know, and, and in the middle of this accountability and the sober living, my wife was helping me. I was getting my resume together and keep in mind, dude, I came out of treatment. A, uh, I had no job. I had no job history since the military. So I had a lapse of about a year and a half with no job history. I got kicked out of the military in January, 2018. Now it is mid 2019, right? So I'm putting a resume together. I have a bad discharge from the military. I have no work history. I'm in debt. Yeah. I have, I'm a registered narcotics offender for the state of California. I have two DUIs a year ago. I have a, a plethora of other misdemeanors. So I'm not looking too great on paper if you run a background check. You know what I mean? Like if, right. if you find out, you run my social security number and you're like, whoa, dude. Like, going on here, yeah. Absolutely. This guy's all over the place. Dude. Like, <laughs> hell no. Am I taking this guy on to my place of business? You know? Right, like, right. And so, and I knew I was going to be facing, I knew it was going to be tough, you know? So, but I put my resume together and I, 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 you know, I, I made it look good. I had went to school and stuff like this. So I knew what a good resume looked like. And, um, my wife kind of helped me, you know, she had a great job. She, she runs the accounting. She's an accountant. Mm -hmm. She runs the accounting department at a property management company in San Diego. And they like to, um, you know, a lot of renters and and small businesses and places and things like that around San Diego. And, um, she's a hard worker, dude, hard fucking worker. And she'd been there for six or eight years and, you know, Um, and so she helped me put this thing together and, uh, she, we were still dating at the time too. We were not married yet. Um, so I put this thing together. I started applying to jobs and I I figured I would try my luck with government jobs. And they looked at me, they're like, dude, are you, are you fucking kidding me? Get out of my office. (laughs) Are you kidding? Why why are you even here? You know what I mean? They're like, I was like, okay, well, you know, that's probably not going to work out. So let me go try, let me go try something else. Um, and so I went to, uh, apply to, uh, you know, I, I, towards the end of my Navy stint, I was, um, actually in the painting work center. So I was painting planes, kind of like how people do cars. Yeah. You know, I had my own paint booth. I worked myself up to a supervisor in my, uh, in my work center. It was like the corrosion work center and we were painting and blasting and doing all this stuff. And, so I had an affinity for, uh, or I had a liking for working on, you know, aircraft and boats and, and making things look good, you know? Yeah. Uh, I was an art major in college originally. So I, I liked that, you know? And so I was like, let me go give that a try. So I went to this boat yard and applied for a job and um, the guy, you know, it was paying pretty good. You know, it was, it was, you were a W9 employee, but it was starting off at 20 bucks an hour. And I was like, okay, well, that's, that's decent money for coming out of rehab with no, with zero an hour. Yeah. And a bad, <laughs> like, and a bad record. Yeah. Because I was looking at, I mean, I figured, hey, I'm, I'm either looking at union or something like this. You know what I mean? Right. So um, this guy took me on and, you know, I was enjoying it, but I realized that my boss is actually an addict and an alcoholic. So as I was, you know, early in sobriety and still in sober living, this guy's smoking joints out there and he's drinking at 9 a.m. while he's telling me what to do on which yacht and all this stuff. And I liked the job but the environment was not fucking good for me, dude. And I knew from going to treatment and being in the sober living that if it's not good for you, you got to get out of there. Got to get out. Like, because I I had learned at this point that I have to put sobriety first. Sobriety comes before $20 an hour. Definitely. Sobriety comes before $100 an hour. Before absolutely everything. 
Right. And I had, I had started to understand that. I had started to finally understand that I will only have a house of cards unless I put sobriety at the top. Then I have a foundation. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, so I left there um, and I was back at sober living with no job, which I, I, I didn't care. It was fine. Um, so I started looking again and I was actually working out at 24 hour fitness one day. I was feeling pretty good. You know, I had, I had no car, so I was walking everywhere and Ubering and lifting when my girlfriend or my, you know, uh, parents would send me money. They were talking to me again a little bit cause they were, I was sober and, you know, um, so I was at 24 hour fitness working out one day and I got a message through indeed.com. And it was a message from a guy, an agency owner at Allstate Insurance who said, hey, saw your resume. He doesn't know my background. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, yeah. I can't say that first, you know. Right. So, um, he said, hey, I, I'd like you to come in for an interview. So I walked into the interview uh, about a week later. You know, I had borrowed, uh, you know, a, a tie from this guy, a jacket from this guy slacks from this guy dress shoes from this guy and i had socks so <laughs> so i i walked in and i i sat down with this guy and his name is ryan this is still he's still my boss um, i awesome. still work there and um you know he I, I interviewed with him and i i told him hey i i'm sober i i do not have a very good background um but i'm, I'm willing to work with you for free give me a couple weeks here i'll work for free i'll show you what i'm about and in that meantime, before you pay me, we'll run the background check and see if this clicks. And he said, wow, you know, I'm okay. He called me back a couple of days later. He said, I'm going to give you a shot. So I started in the sale. I, I was, I, I started as a sales guy. Um, and I went in there and I was, you know, make, I'm still waiting on the background check and I'm making phone calls and I'm talking to people and I'm doing the parts that I can do. I can't write policies. I can't issue anything. I have no binding authority, all this stuff. Right. So I'm learning the insurance industry a little bit. And, you know, luckily I had no financial crimes or else I would have never gotten this job, but yeah. um, my background check went through for Allstate. And after my background check went through, which I, couldn't freaking believe. Thank God I only had misdemeanors, but they, they approved me. They background check cleared. And so I took the state exam. I passed the state exam the first time up in San Diego and state exam, dude, state exams are hard, man. Yeah. I, wonder if they're I mean, there's, weed there's out. State, I even <laughs> talked to my friends that are barbers now and there's a state exam for being a barber and that shit's hard. But, you know, <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> state yeah. exams are difficult. I don't care what the exam is, real estate, EMT, whatever state exams are challenging. You know, yeah. so I was thrilled. I was like, wow, I passed this thing the first time up. I didn't realize that I wasn't done. I wasn't all the way in yet. All state approved me for the background check, passed the state exam. Now I have to get approval, a final background check through the Department of Insurance for the state of California. And they sent me a letter oh, no. at the end of 2019. And they said, sorry, we're not giving you a license. So I, I started there in August of 2019 in December. My boss said, Hey, they're not going to give you a license. And I said, well, at the bottom of this piece of paper, it says you can appeal it, you know? And I, I was already at a stage in my life where I have a job now. Yeah. I got, I got pretty good income coming in, you know, steady paycheck, full-time work, got some benefits. Like, wow. You know what I mean? This is stuff that I, I wasn't given after the military. And um, so I said, Hey, let, let me exhaust all options, you know? And my boss said, yeah, I want you here. So let's, let's appeal this. So my boss already knew I was a go-to guy. 
I was showing up early. I was leaving late. I was doing my job. I was taking out the trash every day. I was a guy that he wanted. I had started to become an asset instead of a liability. For the first time in my life in many years, I had started to become an asset, not a liability. And that was cool. I felt good about that. And so I appealed it. Dude, the process of appealing a decision for the Department of Insurance for a state is I can't imagine. fucking brutal. Dude. Yeah. Yes. I had, I had to go to court. I had to go to court three separate times again to get documents. They had to all be stamped. I have to pay hundreds of dollars to get them notarized by the court. I got to send them in. I got to wait. And then they finally said, okay, we have all your documents. Now we're going to give you a court hearing to see if we're going to give you your license. Now it's fucking March, dude. And the pandemic hits, dude. So, So my boss says, oh, so we're still in limbo for the appeal system and all that. And I'm still working for him. Dude, I've been there since August and I'm still not binding policies. I'm taking calls. I'm sending referrals but I'm doing good work. My boss loves having me. I have yeah. become great at customer service. I realized I was great at sales. You know, my boss was a great teacher. You know, I approached the insurance industry from a point of education and not shoving this down your throat of insurance that you have to buy anyway. Right. You know what I mean? So I was learning all this stuff and I was actually enjoying it. And I still do. I, I really enjoy my job. And um, so they said, okay, we're going to have a telephonic court hearing because the pandemic hit and you can't go to court. Um, so I had a telephonic court hearing in which I, my boss was involved in. So it was me, a judge from a San Diego court, a lawyer from the department of insurance, whose job it is for his job is for me to not get my license. He's the prosecutor and I'm the defendant. Right. And I'm the only guy. I don't have a public defender. I don't have a lawyer. I'm there. But what I did is ahead of time, I sent in all my, I sent in my document of rehabilitation. I sent in my awards from the military that I had when I had my shit together. I sent in proof of AA meetings. I had a letter from my sponsor. I had a letter from my therapist. You know what I mean? So I had all this proof and all this stuff that, Hey, I'm not just talking about this shit, dude. I'm, I really am living this now. Like, so Anyway, it was a fucking rough experience. It was like a three hour phone call where I had to actually call my boss as a witness to, def- to defend me. <laughs> dude, this is hilarious, dude. So I'm in there and I'm like, so we're on the phone call and I'm like, I'd like to call Mr. Hartwigson to the stand, please. And the judge is like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? You can just call your boss up. You don't need to address right. him. Like, it doesn't need to be right. right. <laughs> <laughs> Because I was like, uh, Ryan, would you say that Mr. Ward is a good employee? You know, and she's like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Like, just talk normal, you? man. What are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, okay, uh, hey, Ryan, so when did I start working for you? You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. So I changed my tone of voice. <laughs> I thought I had to actually go in there and do this sort of Of course, of, yeah. You know, Straight I thought up, I had to be yeah, a lawyer. Judge then, style. Dude, it was funny because I was taking it super serious because it was serious, you know, and um, and the public or the prosecutor, the, the guy, well, the guy whose job it was for me to not get my license, he was like, uh, hey, uh, Mr. Ward, you know, are you on probation right now? I was like, fuck, yes, five years. He's like, what is that for? You know what I mean? And I talked about all the, and he's like, okay, so you were high on meth and all. <laughs> so, he, I mean, dude, this guy made me look like. Yeah, he's coming after you for sure. Well, you know what I, I have to say too? He made me look like who I was. You know, yeah. he wasn't, it was, it was nothing that he said that was a lie. There was nothing he said that wasn't truthful. 
But all I had riding on me was that, hey, this is what I'm doing now, right? So two months later in May, they said, we're going to give you your license, dude. Wow. Give you a restricted license. That's fucking you're awesome. You're going to be, so I basically, I have my license. I can bind, I can talk to people and give them insurance. I can insure their homes. I got my life license. I mean, life, auto, home, everything, right? So it was, I mean, this is monumental, dude, that I went from that, yeah. the same state, the same state that was going to send me to prison two years later gave me an insurance license to transact and, and, and handle money, dude. You know yeah. what I mean? Like this is, it, that's a big deal, dude. So anybody listening to this, trust me, you can do it. It's a lot of work and it's a fucking fight, but it's possible, you know? It and I possible. eventually, yeah. And I eventually got my license. Um, and, you know, I, I'm actually running the sales department at my all state now. Um, and, you know, I mean, life is pretty good. I, I, I married my wife in July of 2020. We got married during the pandemic. We did a Zoom thing through the courthouse uh, at, on the Bay in San Diego. And, um, you know, through this time and all this great stuff happening, though, my, my program that I was so active in, in AA, doing all the stuff and walking the walk um, and not just talking the talk, I... Some of it fell by the wayside, you know, and my book started collecting dust. And, um, you know, I had started the Instagram in July of 2020, A Life Recovered. And part of me was getting really consumed by that, dude. You know, in the beginning, that Instagram fucking consumed me, dude. I was like, how many people are liking this? Who's right. viewing the post? You know what I mean? I wanted to know all the analytics of it. I want to... And I'm not even getting paid for it, dude. Like, yeah. focus on your job, focus on your recovery. You're fucking married now, you know? And it was kind of taking over my life, dude. And in September, we were getting ready to move and buy a house. The house I'm in now, I'm sitting in, dude, I'm, I'm sitting in an office in my house. You know, it's incredible. But <laughs> when we were moving, um, I found a can of air duster to clean off a computer. And my subconscious mind, addict mind, of course, that devil on my shoulder said, dude, it's, it's not a drug. It's not a drink. It's whatever. Just huff and, it. Yeah. And I just took a quick hit. Didn't talk to my sponsor first. Didn't talk to my wife. Didn't consult anyone. Didn't practice what I was preaching. And I, the next day I was calling out of work. I was lying to my wife and I was driving to Target to go get more. So at 19 months sober, I had relapsed on a mind-altering substance in September of 2020. And it, all it was was a can of air. And the can of air brought me back to exactly who I was 19 or 20 months prior. A liar, a manipulator, a thief. I stole the bottles because I didn't want to pay for them. I had the money to pay for them. And I still stole them, dude. Yeah. You know, I, I hit them in my jacket. What was I doing, dude? Yeah, and I came back and dude, I was four. I mean, anything that triggers that part of my brain, dude, you know, I was back in that cycle of addiction, that cycle of addiction. That is, I have to start. And once I start, I can't stop. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. The mental obsession coupled with the phenomenon of craving, you know what I mean? And I was right back into it. And my wife came home. Dude, I, I, 
I sorry to cut you off, but I like I tell people so I, I once in a while people ask, do you think you'll ever drink again? And they're not asking me to be dicks. I and I don't blame them, right? They're not addicts like me. They're not an alcoholic like me. So they don't understand the basis of the question. Or 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 now I I, I answer the question politely, but in my mind I'm thinking, what the fuck kind of question is that? Like, do, do, like it just it's a bullshit question. But I, I what I want to point out though is. No, I can never fucking drink again. No, I can never have a puff of a cigarette again. No, I can't just take a tiny little key bump. I can't have too much fucking coffee because I will go right back to the asshole I was, the addict I was, the alcoholic I was, and am. I'm just in recovery. So I say that in a present tense because you still have to put, I still put as much work in today as I did on day one, because if you don't, you slip right back. And it could be the dumbest fucking thing in the world. A song can trigger me. Who the fuck knows what it is that's going to trigger me and send me to take that left turn to go find blow under the fucking, you know, it, it, it can happen just like that, man. A blink of a fucking eye. So I get it, man. Um, the metaphor is not lost on me, even though it's not a metaphor. It's a real story in your part. But the, the, the can of air concept as a metaphor works for people. People should really pay attention to that. It could be fucking anything at any time, at any moment. And you're right back. You don't go, you don't take a half a step back. You go all the way fucking back to your worst day of addiction or alcoholism. There's yeah. no, I did eh, kind of do this. It doesn't work like that. You go right back to hell. Yeah. So I had uh, yeah. So she came home and I was, uh, you know, I, I was trying to hide it and all this stuff on that second day. And, um, but she came home and I, I did too much. I mean, given I was almost four cans deep of dust off. And so I was in, I was on fucking Mars, dude. And I had left a can out on the desk and she came back and she saw it and she just collapsed to the floor, was crying. She said, tell the realtor we're done with the house. I'm getting emotional right now. Cause it was terrible, dude. I, I, I had done all this work and it, in my mind now, my addictive mind that has been, now I'm back in active addiction for a 24 hour period. And I said, what I always said, I said, fuck it. And I left, dude. And I drove and I was parked outside a liquor store. And my famous go-to move when I would relapse or I would get pushed into an uncomfortable situation by someone that was right and I was wrong, I would take off. Usually to a Motel 6 for four or five days. You know, that was my go-to was, was, was drugs and women at the motel. That was my go-to. That was what made me feel okay. And so I was ready to do that. And because in my mind... This relapse, I had, first of all, I hadn't actually lost anything. I, I mean, I, I had lost the trust of my wife at that instant, you know, but I hadn't lost my job. We were still buying a home. I still had the money in my account. I had still, I was still debt-free. You know what I mean? So like all this stuff I still hadn't lost, but in my mind, well, this is it. Got to say, fuck it now. You know what I mean? All yeah. that was for nothing. So I was parked outside the liquor store. And I'm bawling my eyes out, dude. And I'm sitting there and I haven't walked in yet. And alcohol was my foundation, dude. The drugs, everything else came after. Alcohol was my foundation. Alcohol was it for me. You know what yeah. I mean? And I was, I was just, I called my brother and I said, dude, this is, you know, I love you. Um, but I, I, I'm going my separate way. This is it for me. You know, I was at, dude, it was just crazy how in 24 hours I had gotten to this point of that I thought I would never see again. And I was sitting there and he was like, dude, grab a fucking hold of yourself. You haven't lost anything yet, dude. Go yeah. home to your fucking wife. And he called me a pussy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and he was like, dude, get a hold of yourself, get home to your wife, man up, 
this is a speed bump and you get through it. But in my life, in my, in, in my mind, I'm like, dude, I lost my days and my days, my days, 19 months and all this stuff. And, um, that didn't matter at all, you know? And so I, I actually, <laughs> I didn't walk into the liquor store, dude. I didn't, I called my sponsor. I told him this is what's going on. I should have called him first, but of course I called him after yeah. because when I would relapse, dude, I know that if I call someone, they're going to talk me off of the ledge. I don't want to be talked off. Right. You're like, I want to, I want to follow through. I'm here to get high. I'm here to get drunk, you know? Exactly. And so anybody yeah. careful on that relapse, because if you're an addict or an alcoholic like me, no one's going to talk you out of that. So, right. but I did call him after I said, this is where I'm at I'm going home. And he was like, dude, you, you realize you got to start your time over again. I said, yeah, I realized that I got a hold of myself and you know, now I'm, I'm, I didn't lose the job. I'm in a new home. I'm back and I just hit six months sober again last week or two weeks ago. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm back at it. You know, I'm, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. And I've realized that I, you know, I, yeah, like you said, I have to do this thing. Like I have to do it all the time, yeah. you know, and, and that's still hard for me to, 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 to comprehend or to come to terms with is that I have to do this for the rest of my life, you know, in order for me to stay 51% with my head on straight. Because if I'm 49% with my head on straight, I'm fucked. <laughs> but if it's percent as long as I'm over that halfway mark, no matter yeah. how hard the day is, I'm okay. You know, so I have to do whatever's necessary on a 24 hour period to stay ahead of that curve, you know? Definitely. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, I'm, I'm very blessed now. I, I, you know, I, I have a house, I have the, you know, I, I have a car, I have a license that I, I'm driving legally, by the way, I have a, I have a real license. <laughs> That's <know>? great. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not looking over my shoulder now. Yeah. I'm waving police. And I, I'm, I'm happy though, dude. I'm happy. I don't, I, I haven't told a lie recently, which is cool. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, um, so things are, things are pretty good, you know? Um, dude, yeah. this is great, man. The, uh, the joy that comes from the simplicity of sobriety and I'm not minimalizing the work. I'm, the work is very hard and you have to put it in every day, but the joy of sobriety, where, like you pointed out, you, you didn't, you don't, you didn't, you, know, you don't feel like you have to lie to people. You're not chasing anything. You're not hung. It, all that wreckage stays over there. And it's wonderful because all of a sudden, like I, I tell people this all the time, like I, when I, I do have, I'm, I'm blessed people do call or email or, or reach out to me on social media because of the podcast. And, you know, sometimes just, I, I talk to him once and never again, and that's perfectly fine. But one of the things I always say is in my recovery, I, I've been blessed where I, the, the, the chokehold feels less because I'm doing all the positive work and I'm living my life in positive, in the sunshine of, of sobriety. And not too many kitschy keywords here, or buzzwords. But what I do like to say is it, it starts to feel like you're looking at your old self in the rear view mirror. But I never, I, I never, I always keep myself in that rearview mirror so I know where I came from and how much work I have to continue to do and who I am today. But what's nice is it doesn't need to consume every second or every minute of your day anymore. You can live in your own way in sobriety where you're not stressed or chasing the booze or the drugs or, or, or whatever it is that you did along with that. If that was gambling or like you said, women, porn, whatever the hell it is. You yep. put that down and you live on your own terms in your life today. And I think that, that that's why I call the show Dismantled Life is because I, just like you, completely dismantled my life and rebuilt it from the ground up. Because if you don't do it that way, you're going to have kinks in the armor and you're always going to have kinks in the armor, but you have to remove all the poison, all the bullshit, get rid of what doesn't work, keep what does. 
move forward. And they're going to have fucking hard days, man. Like you, I, like me, I still do. And I have to like bite down on the wooden spoon or white knuckle it for a while and go in the other room away from the kids or go on a bike ride, box or walk. Those are the three things that I do. And if I don't have those escapes because I'm running towards something in my escape, not, not running from something, there's a big difference. And I'm running to boxing to help me get through that struggle. And sometimes I'll, you know, there are days where I box two, three times a day. And, and I'm very happy to hear that you're six months in recovery again. Um, and I, one thing that I'd like to point out too, is I know that people hang on very tightly to their recovery date. And I think it's critical and people can use that date however they choose to. I'm of the belief, and this is me personally, Anthony Capizoli only, I am not challenging any recovery processes or methods, but I think that the difference for me is I think when people do have a, a they hit a speed bump. And they should use the recovery or the, the relapse, how it best serves them. If some people need to start over to give you the, the, that zero momentum, then fine. Sometimes I think people use that, that speed bump, and I'm not minimizing it, uh, as, uh, fuck, that was a rough day. But don't give up on yourself. Dust yourself off. Keep going. The That's shame the- is in quitting. The shame, the, wear, your, wear it outwardly. Say, I fucked up. I, I did what I did, whatever it was, move forward. Don't let that be an excuse to fucking kill yourself. Uh, I shouldn't say it that way with alcohol and drugs, not, right. not suicide. Right. Right. Of course. So, uh, and suicide too. So it just, let's cover all bases here. But what I mean is don't, don't let the relapse be an excuse to accept failure. Uh, however that's defined. And I'm not, not, not you. Cause yeah, no, I mean, and one thing that I had to realize too, is that like between that 19 months, and between my six months now, I have 25 months of good yeah, sobriety. Absolutely. It's, not, it's not continuous. Right. I had a relapse. So if I look at that good amount of sobriety, if I look at that good time and think about all the things I've done right and wrong and my lessons learned, and I'm humble and honest about my relapse and I talk about it. Yes. Good sobriety. Absolutely. That's, dude. That's a learning lesson. You know what I mean? No and and I'm, I'm lucky it didn't kill me and I'm lucky it didn't take me out further. You know what I mean? But exactly. Uh, I it is think what it you're is. Right. back on the horse. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> that's right. Ride right ahead, man. The, the secrets have the sharp edges as, yeah. uh, as we know, and, and that good for you, man. And I agree with you the whole 25 months in that's huge. All that you've accomplished, everything that you've done going from homeless to your life today. And I always tell people, uh, and myself. So, and I, I have a lot of negative speak. In fact, I have a little app on my phone called Tally and it just helps me. I keep track of certain things I have to do, like take my BP meds or my, my daily vitamin. And then I have one, my happy meter, how happy I am. And then negative thoughts. And I keep track of like my, my negative thoughts. And one of the things that I had to learn how to do is to not turn off but properly, properly or positively manage my negative thinking. Because what, would I would, what I would do is, dude, there were two sides of it. I would manufacture bullshit scenarios in my head where I could create this person that I thought I needed to be and all this facade crap that you know, addicts all do, um, me in particular. Or just, I can't do this. I don't deserve this. I suck at this. Why can't, how come my life isn't as good as that person's life? Or how come I don't have as much money as this person or whatever the fuck it was? Yeah, and I, would compare, that, I would compare my internal to what others had externally. <laughs> yeah, or at least what they were showing. And, yeah. and I think that part of the thing that I've learned is I had to learn how to manage and directly confront the negative speak. 
And so I can feel it coming and it still comes and it comes in waves. And I, but one thing I've learned to do is how I can, and I, I do, I, I can take this from Tony Robbins, uh, but I change my state. Like I'll physically get up and jump up and down or shake myself or go for a walk or do something to purge the negative thought, control it, address it directly, and then leave it behind me in a, in a good way. Not, not ignore it because ignoring it just manufactures more negative thinking. But so that's a very important piece of my recovery is getting right. to deal with that. And I say all that because it's constant work. There's never a day off, man. You can't fucking, you can't think I got this. So I avoid situations where I'm, I could potentially easily fail. I don't meet my friends at fucking bars. I don't do shit like that because that's crazy. So I love your story, dude. This is fucking great. I, I, I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I am really, really honored to have you on the show. I love what you're doing on Instagram. I am very happy. And I'm going to say this, not in a condescending way, but I'm very proud of you because of all of you're taking so many different positive approaches in your life with a life recovered. You're it's, it's great to hear, man. And I am honored to be a part of your sober day today. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I, I appreciate it. man. I do. And, uh, you know, um, very good shit. I, God, I, this has been a tremendous, tremendous conversation. And I think that um, anyone listening, first of all, check out. Uh, so it's, it's a life recovered on Instagram and it's wonderful. I check in every day and I read people's stories that they contribute. And if anyone wants to contribute, how do they do that, Matt? So uh, yeah, it's a life recovered on Instagram, all one word together um, and feel free to message me on there or the email is on the page, a life recovered 2020 at gmail.com. You can get on there and share your story. Love to have you, you know um, it's a community. So without the individual, it's, it's nothing. So um, it's great, man. And, and it, you know, just to kind of wrap things up, can you just tell us what life is like today in the sunshine? It sounds like things are going magically. Yeah. I mean, you know, I had to work really hard to get here, but my life today is when you're in active addiction, it's hard to imagine that this um, is a possibility for you, that you can get to this level, um, you know, and I'm still not where I want to be, you know, I'm still fighting for benefits from the military and I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to get some of the things that I lost in my addiction back. And I'm still building trust again with my wife, you know, but as long as I'm clean, those are all fucking possibilities of things that I can attain, you know? So, um, I'm, I'm blessed to have this. I'm blessed to have a computer that's charged where I can talk to people and talk to you and, and this stuff. And it's cool, man. I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to go and sell this on Craigslist for this. You know what I mean, like, <laughs> <laughs> to get an eight ball. I, yeah. I yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, th I mean, th things are good. Things are good, but you know, it's, it's one day at a time, you know, not months at a time. Like I thought it was for a little bit. So. I love it, Matt. Thank you so very, very much for sharing your story. brother. Yeah. Thanks, man.